17. I'll read verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. Luke chapter 17, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, talking, this is Jesus, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's Word. So we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings in the spring this year. And we come to a passage today, the main point of which is forgiveness. Twice, once in verse 3 and once in verse 4, we read that Jesus expressly mentions forgiveness, but all ten verses serve that theme. Now it seems to me that, that Christians, um, we kind of know what forgiveness is. We certainly know we're supposed to practice it. We may be even to, able to define it a little bit, but I think that for there's a lot of confusion on the subject. And the essence of forgiveness often eludes us. So, for example, uh, years ago, I met with a couple that was going through, a married couple that was going through hard times. And they, they came to me only after seeing another pastor for their troubles. And after they sat down and, you know, told him all of what they'd struggled with, he said, well... You know, you just need to forgive and forget. That's all it takes. And that was all he said. And he made it, he said it in such a flippant way that he made it sound as if, you know, it's easy to do that. Well, for this couple who had gone through years of the cycles of hurt, harmful comments and anger and hurt feelings and the cold shoulder and just lovelessness, forgiving one another at that moment sounded anything but easy. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people in our culture today who are saying that forgiveness can be a bad thing. And that the powerful use the obligation to forgive to oppress the weak and to shame victims into silence. A few years ago, I read an article by Lane Carlson in Harper Magazine. Uh, Miss Carlson is a feminist scholar, and she wrote about the frustration she experiences when she sees Powerful men, usually politicians, 
Sometimes ministers have to make a public apology, you know, with their wife standing there silently by their sides. And this is what she wrote. Apologies shouldn't be the story when men with responsibilities behave badly, but the apologies keep coming. They are a sleight of hand. The one neat trick to diffuse social tensions without having to change anything about society. Forgiveness is a custom propped up by 2,000 years of Christianity and a host of people making money from it. There is an industry of preachers, teachers, psychologists, and self-help gurus who create a set of cultural assumptions about who forgives and why. One that places enormous pressure on victims to make the hurt disappear. And then about that time I read another article by someone who claims to be a minister who said that if you ask people who have been victims of violent crime to forgive, that's actually in and of itself, quote, dehumanizing and violent. So there's a lot of talk about forgiveness these days, a lot of confusion, not a lot of agreement on it. What does Jesus say about forgiveness? And I want to show you three things, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. First of all, Jesus says that it is important to forgive. Then second, we'll see that there's a process to forgiveness. And then third, we'll talk about the desire to forgive. So it's important to forgive. There's a process to forgiveness. And then finally, we've got to get the desire to forgive. So first, it's important to forgive. Let's reread verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 17, Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than, he, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now the two big questions all the scholars write about when it comes to these verses are, what does Jesus mean by temptations to sin that are sure to come? And then second, who are the little ones that he's referring to? Now some have said, and actually I've heard a lot of people say this, the temptations to sin could be anything, any questionable behavior whatsoever, and that the little ones are always children. Now as a rule, that's a good thing, right? Behaving yourself around kids. I'm in favor of behaving yourself around children. But... Some Christians have used verse 1 in such a way so as to have turned themselves into, I don't know what else to call it, obnoxious hall monitors. So, for example, I have heard people argue that verse 1 means that Christians should not dress up for Halloween because it might cause children to worship the devil. I have heard people use verse 1 to advocate against dancing, against watching television, against watching movies, against playing games on Sunday. I mean, you name it. I have heard different Christians say verse 1 means you can't do that. They just, some people like to be hall monitors, right? And tell people what they can't do. Now, I don't think Jesus had any of those things in mind, especially television, since it hadn't been invented yet. Nor do I think These little ones refers only to children, though certainly children are included in that number. Because of how Jesus uses the Greek word translated as these little ones elsewhere in Luke's gospel, I think Jesus is talking about anyone who at present is being drawn to him. In other words, people who are weak and vulnerable because they are little ones in the faith, they're new to Christian things. 
So it could be old people, it could be young people, it could be anyone in between. They can be easily led astray by seeing other Christians provide the wrong example. But what's the wrong example? What's the temptations to sin? Well, I think you look at the context of, verse, of chapter 17, it's clear to me. Jesus has specific temptations to my, in mind, and it is what he's talking about. It's the temptation to withhold forgiveness from your fellow believers. Jesus says, if you claim to follow me, don't you dare tempt people to stop following me because you can't forgive. Christians are above all else to love one another. I mean, that's the main command in the New Testament. Love one another. And loving people means being quick to forgive people. But if you start holding grudges against one another in the Christian community and one of these little ones in the faith sees it, they will think, you know, I thought Jesus was all about love. I thought the Jesus people were the loving people, but I guess that's not the case, so I don't want anything to do with this. Some of you I know have had the great misfortune of being a part of a church that went through a big nasty fight. Is there anything quite as miserable as dreading going to church on Sunday morning? Because you don't know, you don't know what you're going to hear. You don't know who's going to pull you aside in the hallway and complain about something or spew venom about somebody else, or yell at you. you don't you, didn't you hate when that happened? Those of you that have done this, didn't you hate when that happened? Going to some event in town and somebody saying, hey, don't you go to such and such church? What in the world is going on over there? And when that was happening, did you see a lot of baptisms in your church? Was, was there a lot of sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus when that was dominating the life of the church? The Greek word translated as temptations to sin is the word scandalon. In other places in the New Testament, it actually comes up a lot, it's translated as stumbling block or stumbling stone. We get our word scandal from it, and Jesus says, it is a scandal when Christians refuse to forgive one another. It is a scandal. And if these little ones, these brand new, delicate Baby Christians stumble over the fact that you can't forgive somebody in your Christian community, it would just be better off that you had never been born. In a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, we read this. And I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to make any commentary on it. I'm just going to read it. And then I'll close my first point. We read that Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. <clears throat> Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. In other words, that's just an unimaginable sum of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which $500, something like that. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that, servant, all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. All right, do you see my point? There is nothing more important than forgiveness. But second, there's a process to it. There's a process to it. Now, if Jesus says it's so important to forgive people, then Christians can't go around saying it's dehumanizing and violent to advocate forgiveness, right? Yet because forgiveness is important doesn't mean it's easy or simple to do so. You know, for, there's always a well-meaning Christian walking around ready to go up to some wounded person and say, you know what, you just need to forgive and forget. Just need to forgive and forget. Like it's so easy. But the Bible never commands that we forget. And oh, by the way, there's no button you can push that will make you forget. It'd be nice if there was that button. But you can't make yourself forget. And it just makes, you know, saying it so flippantly and trite like that makes it sound as if forgiveness is so easy to do. I have watched a lot of the television show The Office over the years. Way too much Office over the years. It's kind of like comfort food for me. The main character in that show is, if you've never seen it, Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell. Michael is the manager of the Scranton branch of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And he is, there's no polite way to put it, he is an idiot. The show is funny because Michael Scott has a complete lack of social awareness. And in one episode, we, we, we watch, and, and Michael's having money problems. He's, his debt is, his spending is out of control, he's in a ton of debt. So he goes into the break room there in the office, and he meets another character named Creed Bratton. And Creed says, hey, cuz, I hear you're having money problems. I got the answer. You declare bankruptcy, and all your problems go away. Bankruptcy, Michael, is nature's do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. And so Michael says, okay, okay. But remember, he's not an intelligent man. So he goes out of the break room, into the office, where all his coworkers are, and he <clears throat> kind of clears his throat, and he says, I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> and because he's an idiot, he just has no idea that that accomplished nothing whatsoever. He has no idea about bankruptcy courts or lawyers or filings or anything. Forgiveness is not like a, a Michael Scott bankruptcy. You don't just stand up one day and say, I declare forgiveness, and then all of a sudden... Everything's better, and you feel great about this person who wounded you deeply, and you live happily ever after. That's not how forgiveness works. There's a process. 
Jesus outlines it in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So there's a three-step process. Rebuke, repentance, and restoration. When you are wronged, Jesus says, you have an obligation to to go to the person who offended you and tell them. Now, ideally, the person would recognize it on their own and come to you and confess it, but that doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't happen, you have this obligation. And you can't go in an angry or self-righteous or bitter way because that would just be another sin and it would complicate matters. But with the hope of restoring the relationship, with the sincere desire that the relationship could be made whole, you go to this person who offended you and said, hey, you say, hey, what you did back there was wrong and I did not appreciate it. Now that alone makes forgiveness very hard to do because almost no one around here, well, some people do, but most people in the South don't like rebuking other people. We would just much rather talk about you behind your back. So what do we do? We stuff it. We say everything's fine. I'm over it. I'm past it. I'm done. There's no problem between me and this person, but it does not work that way because God did not create human relationships that way. You can pretend all you want. Everything's not fine. The first step is to go up to the person who offended you. The second step, however, is up to the person who offended. They must repent. That's what Jesus says. If he repents... They've got to express genuine regret over what they've done. No excuses, no blame shifting, no, if you had done this, then I wouldn't have done that, or I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt, you know, nothing like that. Genuine sorrow and regret over what they did. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. By way of application, I'm going I'm to zero in on, on spouses and parents. I mean, this could apply to anybody. I'm going to zero in on spouses and parents. If you are a spouse or if you have children, can you remember the last time you went up to your husband, to your wife, or to one of your kids and said, I'm sorry, I should not have done that? And, you know, can can you think of a time? And if you can't think of a time... I mean, if you just really don't think you've ever apologized or ever needed to apologize, I don't think you should have any confidence that you're a follower of Jesus at all. There is rebuke, there is repentance, and then forgiveness can take place. Restoration, the offended person can say, it's okay, okay? It's over with. We're fine. Let's move forward. So we can see that forgiveness is not simple, yet what I just outlined for you is like the best possible scenario where forgiveness can take place. And a whole lot of the time, it won't look like this. I think Jesus here in Luke 17 is describing a situation involving what I would call minor offenses with a repentant person. I say that because in verse 4, Jesus says, If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, Jesus is not here saying seven is the magic number, but if somebody sins against you eight times, you can tell them to go to hell. I mean, that's not what he's saying. 
Seven was a symbolic number in that day and age. It symbolized completeness. He was saying, as many times as someone who is repentant comes to you, you tell them, I forgive you. Having said that, because of verse 4, we can be confident that what Jesus has in mind in Luke 17 are what I would call minor offenses, such as a harsh word or an unkind but, but not malicious action. I say that because you simply can't engineer a bunch of major betrayals several times a day. I mean, it's got to be minor if it's going to happen seven times in a day, right? A major betrayal would be a husband cheating on his wife, or one business partner stealing from another business partner, or somebody engaging in criminal activity hurting a loved one. I'm not saying you don't work to forgive those sins. You do, but it's a far more involved process. It takes a lot more time. It takes a lot more counseling and pastoral care. I just don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. He's talking about minor offenses. So, by way of example, several years ago, the elders in this church were having a meeting. And I, in that meeting, made a comment that was unkind. In fact, it was sarcastic and kind of nasty. And a few days later, one of the elders came up to me and said, J.D., you know what you said in the meeting? I don't think you should have said that. I think that was wrong. And, you know, I'm not proud to say it. My instantaneous response was to say, well, I'm the pastor, and I think it was the appropriate thing to say at the time, but that only lasted a nanosecond, thankfully. What I actually said was, you're right. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Do you think I need to go to the rest of the guys and apologize? And this particular elder said, no, I, you know, I still make a big deal out of it. I just, I just thought you should know. And, I, and that was it, you know. And not only did I appreciate that man had enough respect for me to come to me in that way and say it, but of course now I have respect for him for being willing to say it. And the relationships among all of us have been improved as a result. It was actually a really loving thing to do, but it was what I would call a minor offense. And that's why it could have such a neat, simple, and clean resolution. Does that make sense? Jesus does not have in mind a major betrayal in Luke 17, nor does Jesus have in mind a situation where someone offends you and they are unrepentant. I mean, he says it very clearly, right? If they repent, what do you do with people who have hurt you and they don't care. What do you do with people who hurt you? And they say, well, that's your fault. That's your problem. If you ever have to deal with someone who has narcissistic tendencies or is borderline personality or is a sociopath, you will deal with this all the time. What do you do with the person who wrongs you? And they don't care. Well, there's actually a, a big debate in Christian scholarship over whether we are called as Christians to forgive unrepentant people. And I, I'll confess, I don't know the answer. There are good arguments, I think, on both sides. But I do know that we must be, do the work to be ready to forgive even unrepentant people so that no root of bitterness takes, its, uh, takes up inside of our soul. No root of bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, we read, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, 
and by it many become defiled. When you've been wronged by a person, it is as if they have created a poison and they've put it in you. And the bigger the wrong and the more unrepentant the person is, the more powerful the toxin. And so it's inside of you. You've got to deal with it. How can you deal with it? Well, here's some ideas. When you see this person who wronged you in town, and, and, and this is assuming after you've already you know, tried the rebuke thing once and they've laughed at you and said, you're an idiot, I'm not going to apologize to you for this. You see this person in town and you want to go up to them and give them a piece of your mind and just tell them what a low-life blankety-blank you think they are. You don't. Second, when that person's name comes up in conversation among your friends and you want worse than anything to just scorch, go scorched earth on them in your conversation and tell all your friends what a horrible person this is, you don't. And then third, when you can't sleep at night and all of a sudden you're lying in bed and you start playing the tape, you know what I'm talking about of what happened in your mind, you pray for grace that God would stop the tape and let you go back to sleep. Some people call those steps forgiveness. Other Christian scholars say, no, that's not forgiveness. That's preparing your heart to forgive. Either way, that's what you've got to do if you don't want bitterness to take root in your heart. But it's hard to do this. It's hard to want to forgive even repentant people. So how can we do it? And that gets us to our third and final point. The desire to forgive. The disciples heard Jesus say all this and and their response was uh, in verse 5. Basically, this is impossible. They say, increase our faith. The disciples are saying, Jesus, you have not given us enough grace from God in order to forgive people like this. I mean, you're being unreasonable, Jesus, is what they're saying. And you may think, you may be right now thinking over some of the things that you need to forgive, and you're thinking, there is no way. I don't have enough faith in God to do this, okay? I can't forgive like this. But if that's you, then in verse 6... Jesus corrects you. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, now we don't have a single record in all of church history that any disciple went up to a mulberry tree and said, be uprooted and go in the sea, and it happened. This is hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point within the context of forgiveness. And what he's, what he's doing is they're saying, the disciples are saying, increase our faith. And Jesus is saying, your problem is not that you don't have enough faith. Your problem is that you've lost sight of me, the object of your faith that gives your faith its power. Because if you, my disciples, saw your sins and the condemnation and judgment You deserve for your sins. And then you saw even just the tiniest bit of what I have done for you 
in forgiving your sins to reconcile you to God, you would run to repentant people and grant them the pardon I'm telling you to give them. If you just had the tiniest bit of faith, the tiniest sight. I I don't know if anybody's ever come up to you and seen how you've handled a difficult situation in your life and said something like, I wish I had your faith. But if somebody ever comes up to you and says that, you need to you know, gently rebuke them and say, it's not my faith you need, it's my Savior you need. If you see Him, no matter how dimly, and you see how you've sinned against Him, yet He still longs to forgive you, then you will have a sincere desire, all the desire you need to forgive those repentant people who come to you asking for forgiveness. Those of you who are parents, just think about this with me for a moment. Um, Say you've got a rambunctious four-year-old boy. And, I mean, all day long, it's just been chaos at your house. He's been disobedient. He's been obstinate. He's talked back. He's broken three dishes. It's been discipline after discipline after discipline at your house. Moms, have you ever had a day like this with your rambunctious four-year-old boy? Not a good day. But then, after bath time, you climb into bed with him to read him his bedtime story, and he looks at you with tears in his eyes and says, Mommy, I'm sorry. Moms, how do you respond? Do you say, well, it's about time, you little brat. (laughs) No, what do you say? You say, of course, honey, I forgive you. And you're almost glad for all the discipline and the sin of the day so that you could have that moment with your son, right? If we, those sinners, are like that with our children, how much more is our Father in heaven like that with us? When we go to him and we say, I am sorry for the 10 millionth time, please forgive me. And he says, it's okay. I forgive you. My friends, if you see that, you will want to forgive the people around you. So i got to ask you, I want everybody to clear their minds for a second, and i got to ask you, who is it you need to forgive? It's somebody. Who is it that you need to go to and ask for forgiveness? If you're a Christian, you have the faith to do it. You just need to take another look at your Savior, and you'll get the desire. Now, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy Servants, and the old King James puts it, unprofitable servants. And I don't know why that resonates with me, but it does. We are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty. And in this last illustration, Jesus is saying, don't you think you're going to get any extra points in heaven because you forgive people? It is just part of the job. Jesus is saying, you're unworthy servants, 
and you can either forgive people or you can follow me, but you can't, do, uh, you can't, you can't withhold one or the other. Yet when you remember that when you forgive, you're doing only what a servant is supposed to do, you can also remember how Jesus has already served you. So we are, as Christians, we are servants in God's house. We minister, we serve at at Jesus' table. But when we do that, we can remember at this table how Jesus has already served us. How Jesus Christ, with His body and blood, broken and shed on the cross, reconciled us to God and forgave our sins. So when you take that bread and that cup in just a moment, think about that. You don't need more faith. You just need another look at Jesus. And when you see that, you'll have all the desire to forgive you'll ever need. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray your blessing on us as we take the Lord's Supper. We do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but we trust instead in your great and manifold mercies. We are not worthy to so much as gather the crumbs out from under your table. But you always have mercy. So grant us, Father, to eat this bread and drink this cup as a memorial to the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may dwell forevermore in Him. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, we invite everyone...